This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. This morning's reading was written by Sister Joan Chittister. The concept of power is precisely is based precisely on being able to turn another person's world upside down. It is the ability to do our own will, whatever its effect on the other. That is why power is so often destructive. Our own will and the means to enforce it blot out the rest of the world. Yet I do not perceive myself as powerful. I perceive myself as strong. As able to endure, yes, but not as able to change things. And the ability to change things, to work your will, whether anyone else likes it or not, is the real essence of power. It is a tragic distinction, this contradiction between power and strength, because it unmasks the difference between the powerful and the powerless, between an oppressor and a victim. Worst of all, I am not sure whether the problem is in the environment or in me. (laughs) Maybe I am simply failing to do what I ought to do, whatever the price to be paid. And selective verses from the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, seeing I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I have provided myself a king among his sons. And when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Are are all of your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. What the Spirit is saying to the church, thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. 
We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. But he said, I am the man. They brought to the, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they threw him outside. Jesus heard that they had thrown him outside, and having found him there, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who speaks to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Is it legal to talk on a cell phone while driving in our state of Michigan? It is, right? It's legal. And you can hold it while you're driving? Have you been in a state where that's not true? New Mexico? All right. New York? New York, yeah. I think that's true in Maryland, in the District of Columbia, a few other spots. Uh, we moved to uh, D.C. a few years back, and there was a law against talking on the phone while holding it, but you were allowed to dial the phone <laughs> while you're driving. But then you had to set it to speaker or hands-free. Uh, but in nearby Maryland, where we found ourselves driving a fair bit, it was more strict. You were not allowed to use a handheld phone for any reason while you're driving. You couldn't dial or do anything. And I thought, well, how can I? I'm never good at the hands-free thing. How can you play words with friends? How can you play words with friends while you're driving? Exactly. <laughs> when it's your move, I mean, who can wait for a traffic stop or putting it in park? Exactly. And I thought, how am I supposed to know where I'm going if I can't use Google Maps? But I guess you could set that up beforehand and then have it tell you things. You know. Well, a couple of psychology professors have noted that such laws are unlikely to have much effect on us driving safer, on distracted driving, because they're based on a common and fundamental misconception about how human perception works. 
It's not about keeping our eyes on the road or hand, our hands free, although those things don't hurt, of course, but really it's about our brains. And some years ago, these psychologists did a study that's become fairly well known. They had a group of people watching a video in which there were a number of people who were passing a basketball back and forth. Some of these people wore white t-shirts and some of them wore black t-shirts. And the instructions for the people in the study were count how many times the people wearing the white shirts pass the basketball to each other. Don't worry about the team wearing black. Just worry about the team wearing white. And there was maybe 10 people, just to give you an idea, half wearing white shirts, half wearing black. There were maybe two or three basketballs among them, a lot of bounce passes. They're keeping track. Well, in the video, a person wearing a full-body gorilla suit unexpectedly enters the scene, walks in the middle of these people passing their basketballs, turns and looks at the camera, beats on their chest, and then exits the scene. Well, interestingly, half of the people in the study did not see the person wearing the gorilla suit. <laughs> they did not see it. Half did. And the gorilla was invisible for nine seconds. Nine seconds, so it wasn't like this super quick thing. And uh, the other half was just who didn't see it was incredulous, including one who was a surgeon and chief of a local fire department. Um, but the most important finding from the study, they said, was the shock expressed when the people were told what they had missed. Not only did they say they didn't see it, but they insisted that it wasn't there, that it did not happen. In experiments testing the distracting effects of phones consistently find that driving with a hands-free headset is no safer than driving while you're holding it because the issue is what you're paying attention to. What you're paying attention to determines what you see. So maybe we shouldn't have passengers either because I have conversations <laughs> with people who are in the car next to me. Uh, but I think they do say that if you have people in the car and you're engaged in conversation, you're slightly less safe than, although if you're driving alone, you could like, you could daydream. You know, you've had that thing where you drive somewhere and then you park and you're like, how did I get here? They do have restrictions on teens. I mean, teens, how many kids they have. Okay, good, very good. They need that for all of us, I think. Uh, and I heard recently someone say, I never noticed Volvos on the road until I bought one and now I see them everywhere. Right? You've had that. You've experienced that. And sometimes we can't see what's right in front of us because we simply aren't looking for it. What we're paying attention to determines what we see. And in summarizing the findings of these psychologists, Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, says the gorilla study illustrates two important facts about our minds. We can be blind to the obvious and we can be blind to our own blindness. So Jesus and the disciples are walking along, and our text says he saw a man blind from birth. Now, interestingly, the Greek rendering of this text does not include the definite article as it is in the English. It doesn't say ho anthropos, just simply anthropos. But it'd be awkward in English to say he saw a man blind from birth. But in his commentary on the Gospel of John, Wes Howard Brooks notes that the omission of the article 
is perhaps a hint that for the gospel writer of John, all of humankind is born blind. And he suggests perhaps we can translate this opening sentence as, and as he was going along, he saw humanity blind from birth. Perhaps the gospel is suggesting that we all, in some way, shape, or form, share in this condition of the man by the side of the road. And so they passed this blind man, who, as the text later suggests, was begging to survive. And a conversation happens, ensues between Jesus and the disciples. And they ask, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And in ancient times, it was not an uncommon uh, perception or understanding that when something like this happened, perhaps the parents were some way at fault. They did something and they deserved what happened. Of course, today we would shudder at that kind of a uh, theological outlook. But if you think about the other suggestion, did the man himself sin that he was born blind? Well, when exactly would he have done that? You know, maybe this was retroactive and God knew that when he was 10, he was going to be, do some really, you know, nasty things for a 10 year old. So retroactively, he was born blind or maybe he was just very difficult when he was in the womb. And, you know, it feels like an awkward way to think about it. Right. Who sinned this man or his parents? And yet I think there's a way in which we ask these questions ourselves. If we were to scale this out a little bit, as we look at the world, and we see things happening around us like conflict, the ways we deal with conflict with each other, often not very well, whether interpersonally or larger groups or between nations. We think about economic and income inequality, racism, sexism, homophobia, a struggle simply to get along with each other and with the planet. And we ask, is this our fault? Is this my fault? Is it the fault of those we've inherited this from? Is it our ancestors' fault? Have we simply inherited a bad situation? Or have we made it bad ourselves? Or perhaps another way to frame it is, is personal responsibility or structural evil what makes the world the way it is? We wonder about these things, right? We ask questions about them. And if you want to explore these more, we have pub theology conversations where we talk about these very things. Uh, but Jesus' response to this universal query is, stop asking these abstract moral questions and get about the business of healing. New Testament professor David Rensberger puts it, theodicy here is the disciples' interest. Theodicy being a fancy word for the question, why does God allow suffering and bad things to happen? So the disciples see suffering as an occasion for moralizing about the victim. Whose fault is it? Jesus sees it as an occasion for doing the works of God. In other words, for relieving the suffering that is happening. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. We must work the works of him who sent me. And this is an interesting construction for Jesus because rarely in the Gospel of John does Jesus speak in that plural fashion. Often in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks I. In the first person, I must go and do this. I must do this. But here he says, we must do the works of him who sent me. So he includes the disciples with those who must work the works of God. And he frames it even as a requirement of discipleship, of those who would follow Jesus. We must do these works, he says, 
while it is day, for night is coming. And here we have a hint in the Gospel of John that Jesus' day will come to a close. And Jesus further speaks of this limited window. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Which is an interesting thing to hear Jesus say. I tend to think of Jesus for all time being the light of the world. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But I think this connects to the we, right? Because when Jesus leaves the scene, is the light of the world gone? No, we hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount point it the other way. He says, you are the light of the world. And I think that's what's happening in this text as well. So this conversation is happening between Jesus and the disciples, and there's been no conversation or interaction with the blind man yet. We don't know whether he's overheard their conversation, and we don't know how many previous times he's sort of heard himself as the subject of a conversation like this. And it reminds me in some way of the whole recent healthcare debate. Those in power, elected officials, go on and on about what people deserve or don't deserve, who should have what. And in the meantime, we have real people by the side of the road who simply need care. Or maybe you saw the uh, photo floating around on Facebook or Twitter showing a picture of men around a boardroom. And it says, what's missing in this picture as the GOP debates about whether to include maternity benefits and health insurance coverage? How about women? So this conversation is happening, but Jesus says, enough of this talking, right? Enough of this talking. It doesn't matter how the situation came about. Let's stop arguing about whose fault it is or about who deserves what, and let's get about the business of healing this man. And so he spits on the ground, mixes it with dirt, puts it on this guy's face, and he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Catholic scholar Raymond Brown notes that spit and soil are symbols of spirit and earth. The primal elements with which God made humanity in the very beginning, if we were to go back to Genesis. And in that light, perhaps this moment of healing with Jesus and this every man, man without a definite article, could be seen as a recreation of all of humanity, that Jesus, in some sense, comes to bring sight to us all. And so a question to ask is, where have we felt blind in our own lives? Where have you felt blind? Where have I felt blind? On what issues do you think we, as humanity, are blind? Can you think of things that were at some point in your life you were blind to and then something happened and now you see this and you recognize it as something that perhaps needs attention, needs healing? And if there's anything that's coming to the top of your head, I'm going to open the floor. Just think about that for a second. Something that really is an issue in our world that perhaps at some point in your life you just weren't aware of, didn't see, didn't recognize. 
privilege. White privilege. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And how it just continues and continues. And to recognize that that's very that's difficult for me. I'm trying to learn how to do that better. Yeah, yeah. And that it's it's a real it's thing. Can you think of anything that helped well, yeah, I'm reading, grow an awareness of that? I'm reading um, a book that Mark gave me, and, it, and it's in regards to uh, Native Americans. Okay. You know, and you have, they have the, the pipeline yeah. and stuff. Yeah. It's not ours. Yeah, we could think about in terms of uh, the first inhabitants yeah. of this land. You can think of it in terms of slavery, uh, in terms of a number of things. So that's that's one certainly white privilege. Something else that comes to mind for somebody, yeah. I don't think I really knew about modern day slavery or human trafficking until somebody took the time to educate me. Yeah. Good. Thank you, Bethany. Yeah. Gender inequality. Gender inequality. Yeah. yeah. I guess like just reading I for hearing people speak about that. Yeah, so educating, yeah, reading, hearing people's stories, hearing people speak about it, absolutely. Anything else? Yeah, March. The working poor. The working poor. Those who have jobs. Those who have jobs, but just, yeah, yeah. We have this idea, broadly, that if you're poor, it's your fault. And that you're not working hard enough. But the reality is we have systems in which you can be working two or three jobs and still be poor. Yeah. Anyone else? Immigration, and the topic that we were talking about earlier, immigration is understanding the reality as opposed to making quick judgments about what's going on. Yeah, good. Good. Absolutely. Thank you, Kim. And of course, we should say that it's always easier to point out what others can't see. Right? And I think the invitation is always to look inward and ask God, what is it that I'm not seeing? And so we want to uh, certainly say that. And yet I think a time also comes when it is our calling to name certain things. Right? You learn about something and you, you feel like your eyes were opened and now you want to invite others to see what you're now seeing. The Catholic sister Joan Chittister, who we heard in our words of integration and guidance, notes that what we don't name, we enable. What we don't name, we enable. We become, she says, blind to the evils in which we live and breathe and call our culture. We take the unacceptable as natural. We take injustice for granted. We call sin normal. But if and when we begin to call evil, evil, then we ourselves begin to confront problem or the issue. But of course society and those leading society don't always like such evil to be pointed out. And so the Pharisees in our text were not rejoicing that the man was healed. They were more interested and invested in protecting their system of rules. Jesus healed by spitting on the ground and making some kind of mess. Well, that was unclean. Saliva was a bodily fluid. That was an unclean thing to do, to con put someone else in contact with saliva. And further, he did this healing on the Sabbath. Did this healing on the Sabbath. 
And so Jesus was acting in their terminology as a sinner in terms of how they set up what that would mean. In some ways, acting as an outsider and bringing healing to one deemed an outsider by their system. This man was poor, disabled, reduced to begging. He was not welcomed into their community. He was not cared for, and it wasn't appreciated when it was pointed out that here was a nobody suffering in their midst. And in fact, not only was he in their midst, unable to see, begging for a living, but people were blind to him, right? It says neighbors of his, and those who had seen him begging were brought along, to ask, is this the guy? And they're like, boy, I'm not really sure if it is. Maybe it's him, or no, it just kind of looks like him. Maybe it's not the same guy. What does that tell us? Not only was this guy blind, but people were blind to his very existence. He doesn't have a name. doesn't have anything. Just an association with poverty and dependence. What we're looking for determines what we see. And so they're having this conversation about, is this the guy? Isn't this the guy? Again, not inviting him to answer the question, but he butts in and he says, I am. Yes, it's me. But it's interesting that he utters those sacred words, I am. He's the only person other than Jesus in the Gospel of John to utter those words. And it's framed in the Greek with the intensive ego eimi. And it didn't need to frame it that way unless the Gospel writer is hinting at something that I think we need to pay attention to. And I wonder if it's the fact that those left out by our systems, those on the margins, they are holy. They are sacred. Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do it to me. And so this person, nobody by society standards, is allowed to utter these sacred words. I am. So Jesus' very act of healing is a prophetic rebuke to those who are blind to his existence. And of course, as we've said, people don't like to be reminded that they might be a part of a system which is doing this kind of stuff to people. I don't like it. I don't, it never feels good to learn something new and then to realize, maybe I have a part in this thing being so. Often we're more content to keep our eyes closed, to remain in the dark, to remain comfortable. And that's why Jesus becomes the problem here even though he's done something amazing. Joan Chittister says, the love of justice brings danger wherever it goes. It is dangerous to the existing order and is dangerous to those who speak out and act out on justice's behalf. And she says, often we let others more brave than us do this for us. And so Bonhoeffer, she says, dies. Gandhi dies. Martin Luther King Jr. dies. Kennedy dies. And as we'll remember in this season of Lent, Jesus dies. And where are his closest friends and followers at that moment? Nowhere to be found. To claim you are with Jesus was, and perhaps still ought to be, a dangerous thing. So this formerly blind man is put on the hot seat by the Pharisees. And it becomes a sort of courtroom drama as it's laid out in the text. And we didn't read the full story, but it's even more lengthy than what we read. They're asking him, tell us about this guy who healed you. How did you receive your sight? What did he say to you? What did you do? What did he do to you? Tell us exactly. 
They even bring his parents in. But the parents were afraid to say much. And verse 22 reminds us of why. It says, The Judeans had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. This is a reminder to us of when this gospel is written, the latest of our four canonical gospels, written 90 to 100, give or take. It's written after this major split between synagogue and followers of Jesus. And so when it says, the Judeans had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. I think that's reading what's happening in their current moment back onto the context in which Jesus is having this story. So we see the struggle current followers of Jesus are having. To claim you're with Jesus is going to cost them something. And we see that sort of bleeding through our text. And so fear of the Judeans becomes code in the Gospel of John for an unwillingness to take the risk of public faith. The Pharisees bring this blind man back for a second round of questioning after his parents kind of a little skittish. And they're like, well, ask him. He's old enough. So they bring him back for the second round of questioning and say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And give glory to God is the equivalent of putting him under solemn oath. It's another way of saying, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. We know that this man is sinner, a sinner. Well, this now healed, formerly blind man utters this famous line. If he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. David Rensberger says, The blind man sets the one thing he is certain of, his own experience, against the standards with which the Pharisees confront him. The blind man's God does not live in a book, but in the act of mercy. Sometimes our rules and our religion become more important than actually finding God and finding God's invitation to be a part of the healing for the broken in our world. What you're looking for determines what you see. Well, the Pharisees are not happy with this man's answers. They say, you were born totally in sin, and you are teaching us? So the final straw for these religious officials is that those defined by their institution as outsiders are claiming the authority to be teachers? And we see this in our own culture, whether it's women, or the poor, or gay, lesbian, and transgendered people. People from the perspective of the bottom have persistently shared in this blind man's experience of being rejected for not having the authority to teach. They've questioned Jesus' own credentials to teach. Where does your authority come from? And now those who identify with Jesus are also questioned. But the man who was blind, has had his eyes opened. Not only to see physically, but to see that there is life in Jesus and in identifying with this one who came to bring healing to a broken world and to bring light to the darkness. So Wes Howard Brooks concludes, it's not the physical healing in the end that's the focus of the story. It's that this man 
His new sight allows him to see beyond the structures, the narrow structures of his upbringing and his culture to grasp what's happening in his wider world, his own society's weakness and evil, and to see Jesus in the midst of it and to see God in Jesus. He says, humanity born into blindness is capable of learning to see, of being sent forth to witness to God's healing power, but there is a price to be paid. There's a price to be paid for this. In other words, there's a price to be paid for identifying with Jesus, for having your eyes opened. At the end of the story, it says, and they threw him outside. They threw him outside. But the story doesn't end there. In verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him outside. And he went and found him there. He went and found him there. Following Jesus is beautiful but dangerous business. It is the power to open our eyes. An invigorating but challenging prospect which may find us at odds with those in power with the structures and institutions that make up, make up our society. And we may find ourselves, in following his examples, being left on the outside. But the good news is, that's also where Jesus is. May we have the courage to join him there. Amen and namaste.
Christine and Scott and Andrew for musical leadership today. And now, as you go from this place, may you remember that the world is too beautiful to be praised by only one voice. And so may you have the courage to sing your song. May you remember that the world is too broken to be healed by only one set of hands. So may you have the courage to use your gifts. As you go, may the light of God shine upon you and within you and through you. Amen. Go in peace. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.